I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I'm going to pull back the curtain that is curtaining things and tell you that I very often imagine that I'm doing these chats to one person, just specifically one person. And I know they will in real life hear this later. There are a number of factors as to why they're not here live, not sitting in the audience live, not sitting in the room with me. I know they'll hear about it later. And that brings me joy because it gives me something to aim for. It gives me a goal. And even when I'm feeling kind of congested and head coldy slash allergy, allergistic, allergized, um, it gives me something to think about. Do a good job. Communicate. Try. Share. Make an effort. Don't just sit there. Don't just, you know, wallow in the sniffles and feel bad about things. You can always get up and do something. And that is a theme, uh, not just because I want to talk about the people I care about, but that is a theme that's going to pervade a lot of the questions tonight. It's, it's been a hot minute since we had a chat. I'm, I'm very excited for the next couple of weeks of streams and chats and things and Patreon stuff. And, and this is sort of the ball uh, rolling uphill, if you get that reference. Congratulations. But um, yeah, good things coming. Real big good things coming. And I can't wait to share them with you. And remember, there's always, always something you can do. It might not be the most glamorous thing. It might not be your favorite thing. But there's always something you can do. Let's get started tonight, shall we? All right. Just remember what I've taught you. Here we are. This is, it's, it's just nice to be here. It's warm. It's comfortable. I'm feeling pretty good aside from the sniffles and odds and ends. I think it's time for a writer's chat. If you don't know what this is and you have no idea who I am. Hi, I'm John. It's my job to literally help you write better. And I'm going to answer some questions. A writer's chat is a Q&A powered by questions gathered from all corners of social media, as well as the questions of those people watching currently in chat. Hi, Twitch. Hi, YouTube. It's good to see you. But first, first, we have an intro to do. Ladies and gentlemen, guys, gals, non-binary pals, friends, aces, burrito people, pets, 
kittens, dogs, chickens, gonzos, muppets, muppet enthusiasts, fandom wiki editors, comic book fiends, junkies, criminals, the rehabilitated, the soon-to-be-rehabilitated, the striving, the ardent, the violent, the revolutionary, the soap makers, the Etsy shop owners, the tired parents, the anxious, the knitters, the kite flyers, the theorists, the people who love theory more than practice. Anybody who's ever sat in a long line at a bank and just wondered when the car in front of you is going to go forward. People who count the number of items before they get into a checkout line to make sure that they're in the right line. Anybody who's ever gotten groceries and then realized, oh man, I totally forgot that one thing, but you're a little bit too embarrassed to go back in. So you end up going home and then making a second trip later. And most importantly, the comrades. It is so so nice to be here, bringing the writing revolution right back to your ears once again. And tonight, I've got some, I've got some good questions. They're kind of all over the place, a little less organized than our last couple chats for sure, but no less important and no less critical and no less worth talking about. So that all said, with no other ads, no other promotional stuff other than, hey, if you like this and you want to see more stuff like it, please, please, please jump over to patreon.com and go check out patreon.com slash John helps you write better. And you will see exactly all the things that I have cooking and going on and how you for $2 a month can help make more stuff happen. Let's get started. Question number one. Tell me three things to keep in mind when I'm writing a cozy mystery. Now, if you don't know what a cozy mystery is, we covered this in the mystery stream, uh, which is available on the YouTube channel. But a cozy mystery is a mystery with low stakes. It's comfortable. It's an easy read. They're generally shorter. There's not really a whole lot of, like overt, detailed, gory violence. It's not emotionally dense and sad. It's fairly light in terms of its tone and fairly straightforward in its mystery, though that's not to say that they're simple, but it is a mystery with very kind stakes. Imagine the sort of thing you would see on the Lifetime Network or the Hallmark Channel. Those are cozies. Three things to keep in mind when writing a cozy. Well, there's a lot to keep in mind when writing a cozy, but let's start with one of the biggies. You can't dip your tone. You can't really wobble it. To turn a cozy into something brooding, to turn a cozy into something mentally explorative, you run the risk of it no longer being cozy. Now, my caution to you here is to make sure you anchor your tone and express it in a way that makes sense by keeping the stakes low, by keeping the character motivations clear, and by eliminating any sort of major B-plot long-term things that just seem to be there for messy, convenient reasons. Keep the story focused in one particular way, and your tone will pretty much ride out exactly what you need to when you're writing your cozy mystery. That's the first thing. Second thing. Let's see. How about... You don't really have to worry so much about claustrophobia. Now, claustrophobia, not, not, the, not the 
condition, but more the sense. The idea that the story is contained and confined, constrained by, oh, we're all at the mountain cabin for the weekend, or we're in Antarctica at the, at the, at the base, or we're on the cruise ship. We've got a limitation affecting the range of character actions. Claustrophobia is critical in a lot of different detective stories, not entirely cozy. That's not to say you can have a cozy where you have you, where you know you give up claustrophobia. You can have very claustrophobic cozies. Put everybody on you know an airplane and solve a mystery, something like that. But at the same time, you don't need to keep pressing the button. You don't need to keep pointing out, oh my God, oh my God, we're trapped. We're here. There's, there's not a lot of room. There's not a lot of space. Oh my God, the walls are closing in, be it literally or metaphorically. You don't need that level of claustrophobia because that claustrophobia runs contrary to the idea of coziness. The idea in a cozy mystery is that it's lighter fare. The stakes aren't very high, the mystery might be complicated, but there'll be enough clues to walk you through rather comfortably from point A to point B if you pay attention and you're diligent. Cozies are nice reads. In the same way that there's a difference between a nice roll and a garbagey roll from the grocery store, it's a nice roll. It's satisfying. And how you determine the nature of your roll or the nature of your cozy is more subjective than objective, unless we're talking rolls, at which point any roll from the United States Northeast is just going to be better. But that's roll facts. Anyway, next thing to keep an eye on in your cozy mystery Please, and I say this very sincerely, do not go overboard with POV shifts. There's nothing wrong with having one single POV character. There's nothing wrong with having one character and the reader just follows that character, the detective, the crime solver, the sleuth, whatever they might be, whomever they might be. There's nothing wrong with having that character doing the work. You don't need to jump around to other characters. You don't need to jump over to the villain. You can just Stick with one POV, and that's totally, absolutely, positively fine. Why? Because you don't want to add any extra story architecture. You don't need to make this thing more complicated. It's a cozy. That's not to say that cozies are inherently always simple or simplistic or childish or poorly written or immature or anything like that. It's just that cozies don't need a whole lot of extra bells and whistles. In fact, they, they try to choke under that. They just want a nice, straightforward, easily digestible mystery story of moderate stakes at best, low danger, point A to point B linear storytelling. Keep your point of view in mind. Don't overstress about claustrophobia. Keep things moving. Don't get too locked into the, the weariness that can so often pervade um, the tone of mysteries. What a great first question. On we go. Question two. Does anyone really care about how something was written? Now, this refers to the process of writing. I'm talking about people who really want you to know how many drafts they wrote or what their writing process was. I got up every day at five o'clock in the morning and I wrote 400 words. Then I, you know, sipped from a golden chalice and wrote 250 more words. And then I turned and remarked to the sky, I am here today, feel my power or whatever nonsense that might be. Does anyone really care? The person telling you probably cares because they're probably looking for some level of validation or acceptance or fawning or praise or something like that. 
But by and large, it doesn't really matter, not in a publishing sense. Traditional publishers don't care how many drafts you wrote. They don't care if you wrote it every Saturday morning from 8 to 11 for a year. They don't care if it took you two drafts and it, and 30 years. It just matters if there's a finished product. And the same is true for self-publishing because ultimately it's about producing a finished book that you can sell. Everything else is just everything else. Do you, Now, if we take this out of books, I think we can really see this. Do you care how many minutes it took me to cook dinner? No, I cooked dinner. End of the story. Does it matter how many minutes my washing machine ran to wash my towels? No, because the washing machine ran and it's not that big a deal. Keep, keep a clear head when it comes to things like this, because social media loves to make this divisive, loves to create some kind of hierarchy, some kind of division, some kind of categorization where good writers do these behaviors and bad writers do those behaviors. And the lines between good and bad seem to shuffle around pretty easily, like a game of uh, three-card Monty, in order to get writers constantly worried that they're not doing it right or not doing it the right way and are therefore violating some kind of, I don't know, collective trust. And their keywords will be taken away by somebody I don't know who. And they will lose the ability to write. And none of those things are true. None of that is accurate. You write whatever you write to whatever degree you write it, however you want to write it, however long it takes you, however many drafts, whatever it takes, do it. Nobody ultimately cares how something was written. But we talk about it because we so often feel the need to talk about something because anything else might require a little bit of, of emotional uh, vulnerability and that's not always everybody's favorite comfortable space. But no, people in publishing don't give a shit about how something was written. Next question. How can I give my main character more agency without giving them more to do? You see this question come up a lot when you start w watching writers grapple with the idea of agency. Agency is the ability of a character to take action or make a choice. It's the ability to do something that has a profound forward-moving effect on the story. I'm going to decide to go to the store. I'm going to go confront the bully. I'm going to draw the sword from the stone, whatever it is. I'm going to make a choice, and that choice is going to lead to actions that advance the story. A lot of people, when they're grappling with the ideas of agency, think that the best way to have agency is to have a lot to do because then you'll have a lot of instances for agency to happen. The problem there is that if you're constantly giving your characters something to do, yeah, there will be agency because the character is going to be doing so much. But you run the risk that if they're doing that many things, it's sort of diffuse. We're spreading them out all over the place. A little bit of this and a little bit of that and some over here and some over here. And it's progressively unclear as to what's important and what's not and how much agency something provides versus why is it important that they have agency in this moment? Do we really need a scene where they order a sandwich? Because even though arguably that is agency, it's nowhere near the kind of agency of I'm going to go confront the serial killer at the spooky abandoned mansion tonight. You d it's not about the quantity of activities. We're not trying to fill up a toddler's playdate schedule. What we're trying to do is make sure that the character has things they can do, decisions they can make, actions they can take that have a profound effect. It's the size of the effect 
of that choice and of that action. So they make this choice. They do this thing. However big the end result is, if I say, yeah, we're going to capture the killer, that's going to have a tremendous amount of agency to it because it's going to move us from second act into climax of our story. If I say something like, yeah, I'm going to order a sandwich. I'll meet you guys back here in five minutes. There's still some agency because I get to order a sandwich. But as a character, I'm not necessarily doing a lot. The, the, the scope, the size, the enormity, the intensity of my decision and my opportunities from that decision are what dictate the amount of agency I have. It's not enough just to make 10,000 two-inch size choices. I choose these socks and these shoelaces and I choose to sit this way and put my arm here and I choose to blink and I choose to you know put this t-shirt on or sip this cup of tea or this, that, or the other. Those are all efforts and experiences of agency, but none of them are none of them are terribly important, critical in the long run, because agency has more to do with what a character does and the consequences thereof. Yes, me sitting here and putting my arm on the armrest like I'm doing right now is nice because, you know, then my arm is on the armrest. But ultimately it has nothing to do with my ability to answer this question. I can just as easily put my arm you know, off the armrest, my hand back in my lap and, and keep going. Agency has to do with the size of impact of the thing creating the agency, the size of the choice, how important it's going to be, how much of a big deal the action that comes after the choice is. You don't have to make them busy. You just have to make what they do important. And this is true for any character, although your main character is always going to need and want for more agency than everybody else because they're the main character. But all characters benefit from agency. It's how a story feels mobile and fluid. It's how a story feels like it has momentum. Agency matters. One of the number one rejection reasons for a lot of manuscripts is that a character never really gets a sense of agency and the story seems to be happening around them. Everybody else is doing stuff and they're just kind of reacting constantly to it. We want to make sure our characters are better initial actors. We want to make sure they're the ones doing stuff. In addition to reacting, it's not only reacting, but it's also not only acting. It's a combination platter of the two. But don't look at it in terms of I'll make them busy. Turn it into an issue of I will give them monumentally important things to do. Stuff that matters. That's a great question. On we go. Are there, I see people came in, are there any questions from anybody in chat? As I sip my tea, I will do the tea update in a second. Hang on. Because tonight I've got a very special tea and I'm super excited about it. I have some golden monkey. It is a, a Chinese tea. It is, uh, I, I didn't pay for it. It was a gift. It's expensive. It's hella delicious, super strong. And it, it um, I believe the kids used to say, I don't know if they're still saying for saying this, but I am living for this tea. It's incredibly good. Caffeinated, potent, a beautiful golden brown color that sort of reminds me of the old like drinking I used to do out of glass beer bottles. But at the same time, it's this earthy, amazing, fragrant tea. Uh, I'm I'm on my first glass because this stuff is jet fuel. And I've been working on this glass for, oh gosh, three hours? Because a little goes a long way. That's your cup date for tonight. Hooray! <laughs> now, 
Are there any questions from anybody in chat? Else, we will just keep moving. Not even entirely sure who's here. I pressed the button to see who's here, and it didn't load anything. So if you're here, hi, it's nice to see you. Um, I hope you're well. Questions, anybody? About anything. Any damn thing. That's fantastic. Shall we move on? Keep going? I keep forgetting there's a slight delay between me talking and you hearing it. We're going to move on and go from there. If you have questions, fire away in the chat. Here we go. Question number four. What is an underappreciated tool for writers that you don't talk enough about? When I tell you I struggled with this question, I like it. I love this question. But it's hard to stop and think about things I don't talk enough about because I don't think enough about them. It makes it difficult. And I know a lot of people have an expectation that I'm going to mention software or I'm going to mention some kind of thing, some tool, like a specific program that costs some money. But I'm going to give you a tool that costs no money. I'm going to give you a tool that I don't talk enough about that is underappreciated because it's so often thought to be outdated. And plain and simple, that is your ability to listen to people and intuit things from what they're saying. Not jump to conclusions, but get a sense of what they're talking about, get a sense of why they're talking about it, so that you can reciprocate whatever emotional vibe they're giving or whatever intellectual lean they're going so that you can engage with them in a meaningful, satisfying way. You gotta be able to read people. You gotta be able to look at things. And I, I know I get flack for this because there are people in this world who struggle with things like social cues and, and body language and tone of voice. And I, I understand that. But those things can be at least compartmentalized and mechanically taught. A ballpark of expression. When I see somebody's hands do this, it probably means one, two, three things. When I see somebody's face like this, I can at least take a guess. A writer's ability to understand the world around them isn't just a matter of understanding that you have a lot of adjectives or that you know a lot of fancy synonyms for words. It comes down to your ability to take the human experience that other people have and put it into words so that more people can connect and relate to it. So it's not enough just to say it's a hot summer day or a sweltering kiln of a city summer. That's nice, but it's different than talking about how the shirt hangs off someone's back. Or how their legs feel leaden because they've just worked 20 hours straight. Find the way to connect with people in such a way that you are relaying to others. So if we're meeting person A, relating to B, C, D, E, F, Q, and all those other folks. Find a way to relay A's experience to them without just repeating the same thing five different ways. I'm going to give you five different synonyms. Look for and intuit intention and meaning from words. Now, sometimes that means you're going to be wrong. Sometimes that means you're going to take a guess and go, oh, well, that person looks mad. 
And you will act from that assumption until you are corrected, either kindly, hopefully kindly, or not. But it's possible that you'll be wrong. And you have to be okay with being wrong here. Because this is about broadening your toolbox of understanding human interaction. Why are those two people arguing right now? Why is one person arguing to the degree they're arguing? It's not just about the substance of their fight. Oh, they're arguing because that other person's unhappy and they didn't get the thing they wanted. That's fine. But getting past the topic of the fight and getting into the nature of the fight. Now, this is where imagination can kick in because we're not trying to interview these two people and we're not trying to like interrupt your fight. Hey, hey, excuse me. Can you tell me exactly why you're saying that at that volume? We're not, we're not social scientists. We're not conducting a survey. We're trying to understand the nature of what it is to yell at people so that we can have our characters yell at people in a way that readers will go, oh, yeah, I get that. That's yelling at people. Those little tools come from paying attention to people, not necessarily reading all their stuff online or knowing the right gift to use or the right emoji or you know how to italicize stuff in Discord. It comes from trying to communicate with people, occasionally being wrong, and making efforts to get better at it. I think there are too many authors of all different flavors and stripes who produce all different kinds of work who don't want to invest the time and effort into this level of interaction because it's outdated, because, oh, man, everything's online. But human beings are still human beings, and understanding the core stuff in a human beyond what's you know projected or curated on a screen or an account or through filters or platforms makes your writing stand out more. It, isn't, it doesn't really ultimately matter how hunky you make your hunky romance protagonist. What matters is if you are able to convey to someone else how the love interest feels in the presence of the hunky character which means you need to question and interrogate how you feel in the presence of people you find attractive, which may or may not be the most comfortable thing, but it's critical to do because your ability to understand and intuit and develop a palette of colors and expressions for human, expre you know, human communication makes all the difference in your writing beyond just adjectives and commas and phrases and stuff. Pay attention to people. Be willing to be wrong and learn to get better. That's your underappreciated under tool. I don't spend enough time talking about it because I think, well, honestly, I worry that too many writers get really upset. They get really like jammed up. Oh my God. Oh my God. Well, I have to, I have to worry about this and I have to worry about that and, and all these things and, and they don't stop and just focus on it in a more, a more straightforward way. So, yeah, great question. On we go to the next one. Question number five. When do I know if my story has series potential? This is a thing that comes up in traditional publishing. Uh, a lot of writers feel it's important, critical, and necessary inside a query letter to stop and say something to the effect of, well, I have to, ha I have to tell the publisher that there could be a series here because I want to keep getting paid. I want to keep writing. And while that's true and that's nice, not all stories need to be series. It's fine. You can build a career out of a ton of 
individual books. That's that's not a problem. You're not a better author because you write a series and you're not a worse author because you don't. But you can tell if your story has series potential, not because you complicatedly uh, create a conspiracy in chapter 10 and then never mention it again. It's not about badly concealing or obfuscating some point you can bring up. It's about creating the idea through whatever you're writing and through whatever you're saying that somebody else would want more of it. So if we're telling a detective story, it's your series potential is in the potential of, well, they've done more cases. They have more stuff going on. If it's a romance story, then it's maybe a different suitor for our character or a different paramour or it's at different stages of their lives. The series potential comes from picking up and running forward with something from the initial book. It is not always or only this grand puppeteering plan of 10,000, well, there's this conspiracy with the people in the robes and then the, 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 the secret ring and the magic artifact and there's this and this, blah, 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 blah. You don't need to overbuild it. You can just tell a story and have it be engaging and it'll give you the potential for more if you want it. But you don't have to want it. It's an option. It's a choice. You cannot write a series and it'll be just fine. But you're going to know your story has series potential because of how smoothly and effectively you're writing the first one. If you're comfortable in that space, if you're comfortable with these characters, you're comfortable in this world, then yeah, it's got series potential. It doesn't always have to be a plot decision. Make sense? It's a great question. On we go to the next. Question number six. We talk a lot about trimming a manuscript, but how do you bulk one up? This doesn't come up a lot because almost everybody wants editorial advice on how to get a word count down. But if you ever wanted to bulk it up, you've got a couple options. One, you can expand the second act add more things in there. Not a whole new plot, though that is an option we'll get in a second, but just add extra links in the existing chain. What if we, you know, in the course of going from A to B to C, took a little detour from A to B to B2 to C to D and so on. Now, the danger in bulking up that way is that it becomes apparent that the scene, whatever it is, B2 in our example, is entirely expendable. We just added it because we were looking to add some filler. But it's still a valid strategy for bulking up a manuscript. Other way to bulk it up is to manufacture a bigger, newer subplot or a bigger, newer main plot and give the characters more to do. Now, some people want to solve this by also adding new characters, which is another way to bulk up a manuscript, but can create its own headaches when it turns around and turns into, well, now I have all these extra plates spinning and all these extra things going on, and the story feels a little bit more fragmented and fractured. Another way to bulk something up that's a bit simpler is more exposition. Take longer to do the things. Slow down. Move the camera. Remember writing every sentence as a camera? Move the camera. Describe things. Now, that's not going to suddenly grant you within one page another 10,000 words to substantially jump your word count. But a few hundred words here and a few hundred words there over the course of that whole manuscript will make a difference. 
But if you are looking to bulk this thing up in some kind of profound way, like, John, I need to add 20,000 words or 30 or more, you are looking at probably a more substantial reconstruction, probably along the lines of adding character or adding plot or adding world building or adding conflict, adding very foundational jigsaw puzzle pieces to your story instead of just taking an extra second to talk more about the car that people are driving in. It's still bulking that way, but it's not the same kind of bulking. It's the difference between, you know, working out and eating healthfully and working out and totally like juicing yourself up in order to massively bulk quickly. Both are risky. Both are important to know because not that you need to go out and do any of them, but you should know that it's possible to fatten up a manuscript without too much effort. But it doesn't happen so much. Most people just want to pare down because people tend to overwrite because they're not sure if they're, you know, making sense. So they're just going to keep saying more until they're, they're sure, they're confident. And that's how you get down to trimming. But yeah, you can bulk it up. Go ahead. Are there any questions from people in chat? want to make sure that I didn't miss anything from previous things. So give me a second while I load my list. Okay. I'm not seeing any missed things, but there's a question in chat. What are some ways writers can treat themselves kindly when a draft isn't going the way they want? Hang on. Or they experience a creative block. Well, that's, there's a lot in that question. Let's throw that question up on the board. So um, what's a way some writers can treat themselves kindly? Let's divide that into kindly when the draft isn't going the way they want and a separate distinction for treat themselves kindly when they want when they experience a creative block. Let's Because they're not the same. While it might be treatable with the same kindnesses, it's not the same problem. Don't Don't conflate the two. When a draft isn't going the way they want, the best kindness you can ever give yourself is to take a step back, breathe, have a glass of water, and realize that you're in charge. You have the ability to steer this thing back on course. That might mean you have to rewrite some stuff. That might mean you have to, you know, slash and burn what you wrote to try it again. But ultimately, you have that destructive, creative, generative power. And you can be kind about it by not telling yourself that it's wrong or bad or that you're stupid or that you're worthy of scorn or shame. Okay, it didn't work this way, whatever it might be. The chapters, it's not my best writing. This scene doesn't make any sense. I've written myself into a corner, whatever it might be. Those aren't pieces of evidence that you're a failure or that you're bad or that you're wrong or stupid or whatever other words we use to jump on ourselves. It's just a matter of, I tried this thing this way. This way doesn't work. You can be kind to yourself by pointing out, okay, well now I know one way that doesn't work. I have all the skills and tools I need to go find a different way that does work. Bring it back 
to the positive, bring it back to that possibility that you're good enough to fix a problem. And you might need help. You might need to go talk to somebody and say like, all right, I'm stuck in a, I'm stuck with this. I've tried this, this, and this. I'm still stuck. What do I do? But you still possess the ability to get yourself unstuck. But the first thing you can do to treat yourself kindly is not attack yourself because it's not a moral failing or a sign of personal character weakness. It's not a bad thing or a crime to mess something up or, or to have to try it a second time. It's, it's okay. Now, let's come to the second half of this. When they experience a creative block. Well, there's a couple different kinds of creative blocks. Are we talking about you just get stumped and you're not quite sure what to do? Because if that's the case, then you can treat yourself kindly by pointing out that you're in charge. And you can have it go in any number of directions, even a direction that isn't, you know, prescribed on the outline. You can figure out how to make something different. You have that ability. You're allowed to feel good about your ability to make a thing or fix a thing or say a thing. That's okay. That's good. We want that. If it's a creative block where you're just burnt out, you've been going and going and going, and there's been a million different things happening, some good, some less good, some way not good, and you're just tired and you're not, it, it's harder and harder to find the distinction in time between the stuff you're doing and the writing you want to do, and you're just overwhelmed when it comes time to sit down and write, the best way you can be kind to yourself isn't by forcing the writing this is sort of the flip side of our first discussion where we talked about you're in charge of the writing. You can, you can brute force it if you have to. Sometimes the best way to be kind to yourself is to not brute force it. Sometimes you need to take a step. Sometimes you need to, oh, okay, sometimes I, I just got to catch my breath. Uh, an example, a personal example. I go to the gym because it uh, literally keeps me alive, keeps my heart beating uh, handles all a majority of my mental shit. Like it's a big deal to go to the gym. And when I don't go to the gym, I'm cranky and miserable. You can ask a number of people about that. But there are times I go to the gym and I'm so caught up in my head. I'm angry about this. I'm frustrated with this and I'm working and I'm pushing my body and I'm angry. I'm not looking more like Captain America and I'm, um, or Nightwing or something. And I'm, I'm pushing and I'm pushing and I'm pushing. And it's, it's like all of a sudden I do pushups and I don't suddenly get up and suddenly have abs or anything. And I find I'm out of breath. I find I am tired and my chest is pounding and I, I got to catch my breath and I got to stop. I can get angry at myself in that moment. Oh, John, what the hell, you lazy piece of shit. You know, you can't do 25 more push-ups. You can't do 35 more sit-ups. What the hell, you can't move another 100 pounds? Fucking loser. I can easily get angry at myself for that. Sometimes I just need to catch my breath. Because I've only been in the gym 20 minutes. I still got another 20. And if I'm going to sit here and beat myself up, it's going to be a painful 20 minutes. But if I stop, and go stand by the machine and catch my breath and recenter myself and remind myself it's not about beating myself up to get the job done. It's about I need to have air in my lungs so I can lift this weight so that I can keep my heart healthy 
then I focus back on what's important. And sometimes that's also true for what we're creating. Sometimes you beating yourself up is the worst thing you can do because it makes you more aware that you're blocked, that you're stuck, that you're frustrated, that you're burned out, that you're tired. And I'm willing to bet that about 99% of the blocks people experience have to do with some flavor of capitalism or patriarchy or sexism or racism or homophobia or wealth inequality or classism or ableism, any number of a billion things of which we should all burn most everything to the ground. But that still doesn't give you an easy answer. Sometimes the best way through a creative block is to put your hands down and bend and breathe and take a step back. Now, I don't know how long that step back is. Maybe it's an hour. Maybe it's a weekend. Maybe it's a month. No matter the size of the block, you're not a failure for needing a break. It's not like, well, the good authors never take a break. Uh, yeah, they do. They super do. They go on vacation with their kids. They, you know, take a half a year off. They go complain about bullshit on the internet. They go play video games. They go do literally anything other than the writing. You are allowed to take a break. If that means you have the ability to get past the block. It's one of these situations where being passive to a thing rather than being directly oppositional to a thing will help you solve the thing because most blocks come from exhaustion. They come from paralysis. They come from expectation brought on by these external things that we don't have enough power to deal with because mostly we're afraid of reprisal. We're afraid of judgment, but by and large, if you take a break, you'll, you'll feel better. And you don't, again, we're bringing it all the way back. You don't have to beat yourself up. Say kind words to yourself. One of the things I say more and more now, and I want to say more and more in the future, is that, you know, please take care of your body. A lot of humans have uh, a great sense of disconnect between who they are and their bodies for any number of reasons. And their bodies aren't always in alignment with who they feel themselves to be. But one of the best things you can do, no matter what, um, is, is fuel your body. Eat something. Drink some water. I'm not saying you've got to eat the right kind of macronutrients or any horseshit like that. But one of the best things you can do is drink some water because the vast majority of people are badly dehydrated. Drink some water. Sit down. Catch your breath. Say kind words to yourself, especially if they feel stupid. And I guarantee you, if you get into the habit of doing that and you, you make it as much a habit as being negative to yourself you will find in the long run you have fewer creative blocks because you, not just you in particular, Ross, but you should always be your biggest ally. And that's hard for a lot of people, but that's, that's, that's at the heart of your question. Be your biggest ally. If you weren't you and you were talking to your best friend in the whole wide world and they were having the problems you're having, what would you do to support them? Those are the things you do to be kind to yourself. What an amazing question. Thank you so much for it. Oh, man. Other questions? Else we will just keep on marching. 
Question seven. What criteria does a publisher use to determine if a book gets a rejection or an R and R? Now, if you don't know what an R and R is, it's a revise and resubmit. It's, a, it's an indication. It's an email. It's a message saying, hey, change some stuff and send this back. Now, sometimes the publisher or somebody will be specific to some degree as to what you need to revise. But there are people out there, uh, we call them assholes, who will just say revise it and come back, but not tell you what it is that needs revision. Because, I don't know, um, I think the... I think the centrist opinion, the liberal opinion is they're just too busy to do their job at their job. I think that's the nonsense they still peddle to people and people still eat it up with a spoon. But the difference between a rejection is there's nothing you can do. This isn't for us right now versus if you change however many things, this could be for us. One is a definite negative. One is a possible yes. It's not a definite yes. The major criteria are as follows. Now, I'm speaking at this from experience with with medium and large publishers. Small publishers probably do the same thing, but small publishers are also potentially less critical about this because they're small and they often want to bring in some people and they can't always afford to be that discriminating at that level. So it's going to be more binary rejection or acceptance. Whereas once you start to get up in capital and up in budget and up in scale, you see more R and R's because you want, you, you've got people on the hook and you want somebody to do something about it. But at the same time, you don't want to you don't want to do the nice thing of actually helping somebody at your job because otherwise you wouldn't be a very good gatekeeper. So instead, what you're going to do is be vague about it. The criteria, though, are as follows. Everybody starts with characters and plot, not always in that order, but they're going to take a look at characters and going to take a look at plot. And they are going to look ask several questions. One of them being, does this character, the main character, have an arc? What is that arc? How much, if any, of that arc needs to be polished in order to say what it's saying better? The more polished, the more rewriting it needs, the closer you skew to rejection. The same is true for plot. What is the plot? Who's doing the plot? How is the plot deployed across story? Is it evenly distributed? Or is it like 200 pages and we're waiting and then all of a sudden there's 10 pages of activity and then we're done? How is the plot spaced out and spread out like butter on toast across your story. The more clumped and clustered and cluttered your plot, the greater you're leaning towards rejection. Beyond that, there's sort of a nebulous catch-all for everything else. Theme, world building, voice, writing style, things like that, as well as a number of other factors, including the optics of things, which is a disgusting point, but I have to make it because there are some publishers who are leery of outright rejections if they're worried that the people they're rejecting would make them look bad. Like, well, we can't necessarily automatically reject the black female author, because somebody might say we're racist. So instead, we will probably just not respond to them, ghost to them, or we will drag out an R&R process so that it looks like we're doing something and we're appearing inclusive, just like all those great white liberal feminist ladies, but at the same time, we're not really making any progress. But by and large, 
It's characters and plot. And how much work would those elements need in order to make this a product, because we're no longer talking about books, a product that they could sell? Would it be easier to sell the book if we churned the horse girl into a dolphin girl? Would it be easier to sell if we got rid of a few characters? The idea or the fear that maybe the author wouldn't be willing to do that to their work does not ultimately matter because the publisher at that level holds a tremendous amount of influence. Because I'm a publisher. I'm holding their future in my hands. If they really want to be published, well, then I will just swing my big publisher phallus around and they'll capitulate to what I want because I can make them legit. I've been in conversations where somebody has said more or less the same thing. I've stupidly said some versions of the same thing sometimes because I used to be a real pain in the ass. But the point is, the criteria comes from the ability to sell and how much effort, time, and money it would take to get the product, because they don't give a shit about it being a book, the product into something commercially viable. More work, more money, more time skews to rejection, skews to long-term R&R. Not a lot of changes needed. Not a lot of, you know, retooling that's critical as opposed to maybe kind of sort of if they want to do it, they can. Then we're going to lean towards R&R. But it's almost always an issue of product viability. Can I sell this? Will somebody buy it? As opposed to, you know, they've made an incorrect statement about the nature of human relationships. They are, you know, suggesting that everyone loves mayonnaise or some bullshit like that. They're, they're talking about it in a more commercial, transactive way as opposed to like a deeply human wellspring way, if that makes sense. What a great question. Question eight. I'm going to need a mouthful of tea for this. Big deep breath. Here we go. Question eight. Can I get a pep talk? It feels like I'm never going to finish a book, let alone sell one ever. Okay. I know who wrote this question. So I am going to speak directly to you. Hi, this is me talking straight to you. I know this is a stream and a podcast and there's loads of other people listening, but I'm talking to you right now. So fuck all these other people. They can just wait. It's you and me in this conversation. Okay. You are working very hard. I understand it feels like you are not working very hard at all because you are seeing other people work harder or faster, or you're seeing other people get results, or you're seeing other people brag about who knows what, and you are feeling very left behind. I can't say for certain if you are being left behind, because the people who are busy celebrating their successes weren't ever going to include you in them because they're not for you. The lady who's crowing over there about her new publishing deal is not including you, because it's not your publishing deal, it's hers. And that's okay. Other people's successes, other people's victories, other people's statements, other people's bragging, other people's complaining, other people's whatever, does not have any impact to diminish the quality of what you've been doing. 
line up a thousand people, have them bitch, piss, moan, and complain about whatever. And none of that's going to take away from the fact that you've been working really hard. Now, I know who asked me this question. So chances are sometime in the last uh, 10 seconds while I've been talking, you said something to the effect of, well, it's not hard enough. Or I wish it were more. Yeah, I wish it were more too, but that's not because I want to crack the whip and force you to work. I just wish we lived in a world that had universal basic income so that you didn't have to worry about a day job so that you had the ability to take care of yourself and the people you love while being able to produce the art you wanted because society was more beneficial and compassionate. But since we don't live there yet because people don't let me throw bricks through enough windows yet, we have to look at things a bit more practically and we have to have more conversations about, hey, Stop judging how much you're doing or not doing based on what other people have done because we don't, we don't know what they did. We see their end result, but maybe they, you know, lost a marriage to this. Maybe they had an aneurysm. Maybe it took them 10 times as long. Maybe they felt just like you do right now. And is it really so bad if they're happy? Happiness isn't scarcity. It's not like they're sucking up all the happiness and you'll be left with table scraps and pizza crusts when it's all done. Everybody has a chance to be happy because we get to determine what makes us happy. So it feels like you're never going to finish a book, huh? Well, I want to point out again that you're writing, right? It might not be every day. It might not be, you know, a thousand words a day or whatever. And that's because you have, you know, one, two, three, 30, 75 things going on and stresses and bills and you're lonely and you're horny and you're tired and you're broke and you're starving. There's a million things going on. I get it. But you're still producing. And it doesn't matter that all your strides in this marathon are always the same length because it doesn't matter who you come ahead of in running this marathon. This effort, this book production process is just between you and you. Everybody else can go kick rocks, pound sand, and screw off. You will finish this book if you keep going. I can understand being tired. I can understand feeling overwhelmed, being scared, being upset, being sad, feeling lonely, feeling lost. I hear you. I've always heard you. I'm going to keep hearing you. But the act of finishing comes from the act of writing. And you're doing the writing. So, yes, eventually you will finish this book. If you're wondering, well, what I mean is I want to finish it faster. Okay, well, we can certainly have a conversation about how to pick up the pace and write more. And maybe that means sitting down and making some difficult choices with discipline and time management. Or maybe it means taking a look at the complexity of your story and scaling it back so that there's less to do. But we can have that conversation. But again, I'm going to ask you, why are you racing? If you just want the reward, if you just want the, the potential satisfaction of, I did a thing, why haven't you rewarded yourself over, oh my God, I wrote that eighth chapter? Hey, I broke 60,000 words. Why weren't those things valid receptacles for praise? Why are you only willing to praise yourself for big milestones and not other ones? Because you can make those small, I'm making air quotes, small milestones into big milestones 
pretty damn easily. You can finish this book. How do we finish things? We just keep writing. We write irregularly. We write inconsistently, but we just keep writing. Let's talk about the second thing you brought up. Let alone sell one ever. Now, you know me, and you know I am somewhat genetically averse to marketing myself. The fear and anxiety I have in promoting myself in a way that would expose me as like, oh, well, you're a guy who's barely done anything with his fucking life. Or who the hell are you? You're not charging tens of thousands of dollars, you fucking loser. You know I'm real quick at beating myself up, and I don't want you to beat yourself up. Selling a book means talking about what you've done. Selling a book means promoting what you've done and offering it to somebody else. Not just, hey, buy my book, fucker. Here's a link. But I mean, hey, you like X. Here's a book that mentions X, has X, includes X, speaks to X, develops X. Why don't you check it out? Marketing is scary because capitalism is designed to turn us into pulp, grind us down, wear us out, because it promotes the idea of constant transaction, constant iteration, constant movement. And what marketing doesn't do is allow for a high-speed mechanical approach because we're not making widgets out of a factory. It's not like we have huge overhead for these things. We're just telling a story, and we're trying to make people interested in that story. You can sell a book, but that means you got to be brave and tell somebody you've got a book for sale. And that can be very scary because we don't know what they're going to say. And I know you. You're sitting there right now assuming, oh, John, they're going to shit all over it. It's going to be a real fucking mess. I know, but I hate to tell you this because I love you deeply, madly. There is a 50-50 chance they will also like it because liking and not liking is a pretty straightforward binary. Things wobble off the binary when we start grading and evaluating, but by and large, the do I like this, yes, no, is a pretty straightforward proposition to begin from. Now, we can't control if they're going to like it or not, but that doesn't mean we have to assume the negative 50% is somehow more dominant, more possible, greater than 50%. It's just they might like it, but they're not going to know if they could like it if you don't make it available to them. And yes, it is very possible that you will try a billion trillion things to sell a book. But at the end of the day, are you still talking to the same 25 people? who you've already pitched your book to, who don't have the means to buy the book, who aren't interested in what you're talking to. Are you trying to get blood from a stone? Are you trying to make the impossible possible because you're too scared to go outside your comfort zone? I am. I'm in that space every damn day. If you want to join me in that space, hey, pull up a chair. I'm more than happy to let you in. You can sell a book. You absolutely can. You just need to try. I understand that you don't feel very good at it. You're not as smooth as somebody else. That's fine. You can get there. You can practice. You can get better. But you're never going to get better, just like you're never going to finish without doing the work. And if there's one thing I know, you are very good at doing the work. You're also apparently very good at judging the work you're doing. But that's not the point. Don't judge it. Just do it.
Do it because you love doing it. Do it because you enjoy doing it. Doing, do it because you think about the future where the thing is done. Don't do other people's judging for them to exclude yourself from the process. Oh, they're going to hate it, so I'm hating it for them before they get a chance to. Don't. Why? Why? Just, just why? Why do that? Why self-reject? Give yourself a chance. Make the effort. You'll surprise yourself. You are good enough to do this because you're good enough to keep going. You were good enough to start. You've been good enough to keep going. You'll be good enough to keep going until you're done. And then when the writing is done, we can transition to a whole new set of activities, which again will have a getting started part, a developing part, and a finishing part. And if we were good at the writing and good at the developing writing and good at finishing writing, we can apply that same goodness to the next steps and the steps after that and the steps after that. You absolutely can do this and you don't have to do this alone. You, you don't. You, you can hang out right here all the time and ask all the questions and feel silly and stupid and foolish and I will do my best and bring you as many resources and skills and expertise and other experts and whatever else you need. You don't have to go fly away and try this on your own. You don't have to. You just have to try. One step at a time, a couple words at a time, over and over and over again. Whether we're talking about writing, whether we're talking about publishing, whether we're talking about damn near anything else. You can do this. There are days you don't want to. There are days it's frustrating. There are days where there's other shit that clearly like sucks all the oxygen out of the room. But none of those things translate or transform it into a situation where you can no longer succeed at this. You can do this. Just keep going. Ask questions along the way. Be curious. And you'll surprise yourself. Keep going. I believe in you. What an awesome question. I need more tea. Question number nine. How do I disguise the fantasy monster's weakness for as long as possible? So I'm playing Zelda on the Switch, the new one, Tears of the Kingdom. And I'm really scared to get into like boss fights because I'm not very good at Zelda. Uh, I die a lot. I don't have a lot of hearts. I have a lot of stamina, but I, I don't have a lot of hearts and I, I tend to panic very easily. So when I see the monster has the big glowing part that I'm supposed to shoot with an arrow or something, I freak out because, oh my God, what if I run out of arrows? Oh my God, what if this doesn't work? I'm just going to keep dying and dying and dying and I'll have to quit playing because I'm just a loser who's not good enough. That glowing part of the monster the weak spot or the aversion to sunlight or whatever you fabricated as your monster's weakness. You disguise it by not mentioning it. Now, the reason why things blink in a video game is so that we are visually prompted in a visual medium to know what to do. Because otherwise it's just, well, we're just going to shoot at it and see what happens. But identifying that weakness is generally a point where the story pivots where the character suddenly gains an upper hand. And if you meter out, if you measure out how to control that reveal 
and control the throttling of when the character is on the back foot to when the character is then with an advantage, your fight scene, your engagement with the fantasy monster will be far more evocative. And you'll be totally fine shooting bomb arrows at the big giant rock monster because you realize, oh, I can just stand here and shoot a couple and then run over there and stand there and shoot a couple and just keep going. You disguise it for as long as possible, not necessarily by making the characters stupid. There's an old fantasy trope of like the characters are dumb until some character says something like, oh, it has to do with X, Y, Z, whatever it is. Then all of a sudden, like, the team pulls together in a super fantasy, like mega death squad and they eliminate the dragon, which is very unsatisfying, very unrealistic, even for fantasy. And it's really boring to read. You want to disguise that weakness by making sure you control when the weakness is, is not just exposed, but activated. So if there's a weak spot in the dragon's armor that needs to be shot with a big ass arrow, you mention it so that we know it exists in the world of the story, but then you spend time not just focusing on it or the need for one special magic arrow shot by a guy in a town. You, you talk about all the other dragon-adjacent things, the wings and the fire and the claws and the teeth and the this and the that. And then once we've suitably you know built up this fight where it doesn't really seem like there's a weakness, even though we had a weakness mentioned to us, then, at some point, you casually, subtly, easily, quickly mention the weakness again. Just in the spread of a dragon's wing, there's a small little gap in the, in the pieces of, of chitin or armor or skin or something. And that's all you need. And then you sn the snowball rolls, because once you bring it back up into the reader's awareness, then you can act on it but it's about understanding and controlling the flow of that scene. Do this too soon, and the fight's not going to seem like a very big obstacle. It's going to seem more like an inevitable conclusion. Well, eventually, they'll just you know hit the guy in the spot, and he'll die. It's just a matter of waiting impatiently until that happens. Whereas if we build up to it and control it over time, it feels like much more of an earned accomplishment to discover, ah, oh, the weak spot over there, it's glowing. And that comes from understanding and organizing the scene. Don't pivot to the victory condition too quickly, especially in fantasy. I know you want to make your character super badass, but racing through a challenge does not make for a badass character. It makes for a poor challenge. That's how you disguise the fantasy monster's weakness. Anything else like misdirection or giving the team wrong information, they think, oh, you got to shoot him in the face, and really it's you got to shoot him in the tail. Like those are useful tools, but at the end of the day, it still comes down to metering out the flow of the scene and knowing when the best time for the character to pivot from defensive to offensive or, you know, weak to strong position in it. That's how you disguise the monster's weakness. Awesome technical question. Are there any more questions from anybody in chat? Else we will just keep going. Yes, no. If you're new, by the way, hi, it's nice to see you. I hope you're doing well. I hope you come back. I hope you're enjoying this. 
If you're watching this on YouTube, please don't forget to like and subscribe and click the bell and do all those YouTubey things. Um, because otherwise, uh, Mr. YouTube will appear in my home and break my thumbs or something. I don't know. But please, if you're liking what you're seeing, consider subscribing. If you're watching this on Twitch, following is free. If you're really digging it and you want to support more of it, feel free to subscribe. I'd love to have you. Thanks so much for being here. Questions about anything? We've still got a few more. On we go. Question 10. How do I write an effective title? What are the elements that go into making a title interesting or evocative? And do the same rules apply to series titles? Oh, welcome to a can of worms. So let's start by defining some stuff. An effective title is a title that encourages someone to read the book. Period. It does not necessarily and only summarize the events of the book. It does not set only a mood for the story. It does not um, complete a particular pattern of words if it's a series. It's a title that encourages someone's curiosity to find out more, which they can only do by reading the book. Now, that said, you can create that level of efficacy by combining all different kinds of words, not just nouns and maybe an adjective or a verb and a noun, not just a prepositional phrase or two. You can create all different kinds of effective titles. There are going to be some traditional publishers who balk at titles that don't follow certain patterns. The X of Y. Uh, X's of Y. Um the Y colon X and Z or something like that, where titles start to homogenize. It's always heavy noun driven phrases, some punctuation and a mouthful of things to give it this sort of intense weight and size and heft. And again, that might be interesting. Oh, another the X of Y story or X the Y or something like that. How how original. It's sort of like everybody at the bar with the barbed wire tattoo being an individual. Yeah, that's great. All your title needs to do, no matter how many words it is, whether it's one word, no matter what part of speech that word is, whether it's a word you made up, all your title has to do is provoke interest. The cover design contributes to that interest because it's the juxtaposition of the word with the image on the cover to create an atmosphere or create interest followed by the back blurb to get somebody to crack the book open. So elements that go into making the title interesting or evocative, something punchy, something chewy and visceral. I'm going to use a lot of adjectived language for this because I don't always want to contribute to the, X of Y template because that shit is deader than a dead horse. So what we're going to do instead is talk about how to evoke feeling through our title. Pick a feeling. Pick a feeling that is specific to the book. 
This book is dark. This book is bright. This book is heavy. This book is sad. This book is horny. This book is funny. This book is creative. This book is silly, whatever. What are some words independent of the context and stuff in the book, but what are some words that evoke that feeling you're trying to get? And then let's bring it back to the book. What are some words from the text said by characters, titles, chapters, scenes, concepts in the book, themes in the book that do evoke that same mood? So if we were going for comedy, you can make a list of all the comedy words you can think of, all the things that are funny. And then you, you look at your own work. Okay, what are the funny things in my book that make me laugh? What are the things I'm excited by, proud of, tickled by, whatever? Do any items on that list overlap with my previous comedy list? Maybe in that fertile space, I can come up with a title. It can be that simple. Titles do not have to kind of grapple and contain and package all of the everything in a book because otherwise your title would be as long as the manuscript itself. You know, it wouldn't just be Moby Dick. It would be, there's a whale and obsession and, you know, questions of death and capitalism and hunting and grief and pain and suffering and violence and ocean and bleakness and, uh, oh, by the way, you know, wood or something like that. That's too much. A title doesn't have to cover all of everything and certainly not all of everything equally. It picks and chooses. Now, when it comes to series titles, generally there are conventions established within the series or by the author or by the publisher for how the series is broadcast. For instance, if your character is named Day, like that's their last name or whatever, then maybe your titles are all something day. Spring day, death day, party day, murder day, grocery day, laundry day, whatever. Or maybe it's um, all about um, a mood or a vibe or an atmosphere, like danger. So it's crazy danger, spring danger, snow danger, last danger, first danger, whatever. Those are series titles. I made them up. But the point is, if you're going to use a series, and if, because it's not a given, if you wanted to have a, a kind of you know consistency from book to book, that's your choice as an author. There is no hard and fast automatic rule that says, ah, you're making a series, the titles have to do this. You can name them all three different things if you want. Name, name 25 things if you want. It's up to you, as long as the title on a book-by-book -book basis, is interesting and evocative. I hope that answers the question. If not, let me know, and I'll say more words. On we go. Question 11. Is there a limit to the number of people I can acknowledge in a debut novel? No. You can acknowledge as many people as you want. Some publishers will eventually stop you because that's ink you're spending and pages you're making. But when you look at something like role-playing games who thank all their Kickstarter or crowdfunding backers, all those names make into a book. And that's, a, you know, essentially the same as a debut novel. You can thank as many people as you want. 
You want to thank every single person in your elementary school class? Great. Sure. Cool. Do it. You want to thank every single person by name who ever like made you cry? Go for it. There's no limit. You acknowledge however many people to whatever degree, as much or as little as you want. It's totally, absolutely fine. Question 12. If you could only manage one, a website or a newsletter, which would you do and why? I like this question because it makes me think. I like this question because both of those things have advantages. A website is pretty static and I can always sort of control and contain what it is. It's just a repository for fairly unchanging information, how to contact somebody, where to post some things, how to create a calendar, how to lead to sales. It's pretty boxy and pretty straightforward. You know what you're expecting. You know what it can do. Getting it to work, coding it, all that stuff, different issue, different day, different discussion, but you know what you're getting into with a website. A newsletter is a lot more dynamic. It grows, it ebbs, it flows. Growing the population of readers matters. Having content in it consistently matters. The size, the scope, what you talk about, what you don't talk about, how frequently you publish. There's a lot more moving parts. It gives you more freedom than a website does. A website can be fairly static, fairly unyielding, whereas a newsletter can change all the time, every week, every day, every Tuesday, whatever. If it were me and I could only manage one, I think I would do the newsletter because it affords me the greatest flexibility. Yeah, I could re, 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 redesign a website a million times. Sure, I could, absolutely, whatever. But a newsletter, I can make whatever I want, however I want, when I want, which I've done. If you go over to johnhelpsyouwritebetter.substack.com, the writer's secret weapon has been evolving over the last, like, 11, what are we up to, 11 issues? I think issue 11 is tomorrow. Um, there's loads of different ways I'm growing and playing around with the format and playing around with the form because I'm trying to figure out what I want to do. I started off writing something very blocky. Here's a bit of this. Here's a bit of this. Here's a bit of this. And that was fine. But then I started getting into just long form of thought and I'm happy there too. Newsletters afford you far more flexibility. And I think for me now, I can't say you should do it. You're what you know, you'll do it your way. I'll do it mine. But I think for me that flexibility is far more enticing because if I want to have a newsletter that is revolutionary, transgressive, provocative, I can do that. Whereas a website that does that can get lost in an algorithmic shuffle, whereas a newsletter goes to an inbox. It's a more direct relationship I have with the readership. I would go with a newsletter. But I'm also privileged in that I know I have an audience and I can build an audience might be a little slow, but I can build it and I know what to do. I'm comfortable in both of those spaces. If I were brand new to both of those things and I were overwhelmed and I didn't know where to start, I'd start with the website because it'll teach me the basics. It'll give me a foundation of successes to build on. I'll have a little space of my own. And then from there, I can launch a newsletter. But if it's just me and we're just doing me and me today, Newsletter all day, man. Newsletter all day. Because it's worth that flexibility to me. 
I want to be able to say what I want to say, say it how I want to say it, say it when I want to say it, and get it out. That's a me thing. You can answer your question in your own way. What a great question. Thank you for it. And lastly, question 13. One more mouthful of tea. Hang on. Question 13. How can I get more vocal and use my creative platform to say what I want? The reason why this question is the 13th question, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but I tend to take my 13th question and make it something personal or make it something like you can carry home and think about. It's my big closer. Well, this 13th question really sticks out to me because I've been spending time reading a lot of biographies. And I've been reading a lot of biographies about people who um, were creative and for whatever reason are no longer alive. Any number of reasons. And at just about every time, every one of these people, they had a moment in their lives where they transitioned, where they shifted away from one thing they were doing to saying more what they wanted to say. They, they got brave. They got bold. They got, you know, fired up. And they, they stopped, you know, tucking their shirt in and wearing a suit and tie. They grew their hair out. They started smoking a joint. They started, you know, saying a thing or doing a thing. And they, they were people. And they connected with people. And they stopped sitting in this artifice. I really respect that. I envy that. I want to do that. I'm afraid to do that. And I think that by reading these books and examining these people, for good or for ill, because they're not all good people, they're really messy folks with a lot of problems. Um, I think in taking a look at these people and coming up with my own understanding of them, I can find a way to inspire myself. And I can find a way to verify and certify that me getting more vocal and using my platform to say what I want to say is the right choice. I'm not going to be, you know, big and huge and successful like some of those other people who played, you know, in front of millions of people with multiple albums or gave comedy performances that are considered in the top five of all time. But I can certainly, you know, get on this little platform and stand on the soapbox and say, hey, what you need to do is really actively care about other people, especially the people around you. And it's not always about sales and money and numbers on screens. It's about the good you produce and the good you are and the good you foster. And at the same time, I can say things like, you know, capitalism, it's a giant trap that's killing us and the planet. And then anybody who wants to talk about how we all have to play nice is missing the point because half the people who aren't playing nice are never going to follow the rules. And we need to fight them as passionately and aggressively as possible because they are coming to kill us. And that's significant. I want to be able to use my platform that way because it's true, because these are the experiences I see as I walk out my door and I talk to my friends and I feel lost and lonely and connected and apart and together and all those things. I want to be able to use my platform that way. And the only reason I'm able to do that is not because I'm reading a biography of this guy or listening to this person's albums or understanding how this person's grappling with their identity or something. It comes down to they made a choice. They made a choice that no matter the express cost, because had they just stayed mainstream, had they just not been questioning, had they just kind of gone along to get along, they maybe would have been successful and they would have been safe, and they maybe would have been spared some of the pain they encountered. But they wouldn't be true to themselves. 
And for me, that truth matters. Whatever that truth turns out to be, whether I'm grappling with identity or I'm grappling with finances or I'm grappling with productivity or ethics or this or that, that truth matters to me in a big, deep, profound way. And the preservation of that truth, the promotion of that truth is why I use the platform to say what I want to say. And how you can do that too is by understanding how you feel on things and deciding if you have something to say. Now, it's okay to not have anything to say, but believe strongly in things. You don't have to be the guy who gets up and rattles off a monologue about how, you know, anytime you see somebody enforcing the law, really what they're enforcing is the status quo that oppresses other people. You don't have to get into the fact that, you know, there's only a few million unhoused people and literally 10 times as many unused houses. You don't have to talk about how, it's like a million bajillion degrees in Siberia right now and the planet is cooking. You don't have to vocalize and verbalize and become some kind of field expert in these things. You can just have opinions. You can just say it sucks. You can just say it's bad and stop there. That's fine. But that choice you make to preserve truth, that choice you make to promote a thing, that choice you make to say something and speak up, to me, is what really matters. And every writer, no matter what they're writing, be it the coziest of cozy mysteries that, you know, will never rock the boat and be completely harmlessly innocuous and a little boring. Fine. The world needs that just as much as they need somebody who's going to write about, you know, the, the radical idea that we could just ignore debt because we made it up and we just made up how the rules work so we can make up new rules. Or we can talk about how we're never going to have, you know, freedom for animal life without abolition of capitalism. You don't have to go deep down those rabbit holes. You can say what you want to say or say nothing at all or just say, gosh, man, I really like cheeseburgers. I'm not really down to go liberate some cows right now. And that's fine. But it is up to you not so much to build your platform and then figure out your truth. It is up to you to find your truths, the things that stick to you, the things that stand out to you, the things that you are passionate about. Not necessarily passionate enough to the point of vocality. You don't have to like get up there and start hollering about stuff. But the stuff that you believe in, you believe this, you believe that. People should be treated this way. People need to live that way. You want to live this way. You want to live that way. You want to promote this idea, promote that idea. Even if you never get up here and yell into a microphone for an hour and 25 minutes about it, you can still affect that change within your own life. You can have your truth. You can express that. By first finding that truth and then finding ways of putting it out into the world, be it with this giant microphone or with it just in your own lives with your friends, you will find that your platform serves you and your platform can be a tool to say what you want to say. Now, if you're specifically asking how to get more vocal about it, the only piece of advice I can give you is the best thing you can do to get more vocal is to get more informed. Because shifting from I'm learning a thing to holy shit, I need to talk about a thing generally comes from the fact that I've learned something and it's really affected me and somebody has to know now about this. Like 
all those politicians who smuggle and, and, and create slush funds off the backs of underprivileged children. Like that's a whole scam in the United States going on right now. And that sucks. And it should be talked about. And, and we're not because we're too busy caring about some reality show or stars on Mars, which is apparently a thing that's going to happen. You can get to a point where you feel compelled to speak. And you might speak poorly. You might put your foot way in your mouth. But you can get better. You can apologize. You can learn. Now, some parts of the world will never let you learn, never forget that you fucked it all up and you're trying again. But that's on them, not on you. Because the point of you doing this, the point of you getting more vocal, is you expressing your truth as you have come to learn it, discover it, find it, and share it. Which means it's not a, not a static thing. It's going to grow over time. So you get more vocal with more education, with more thinking, with more practice. Use your creative platform. Use it to its fullest. Don't just, oh my God, here's five more Shit's Creek gifts. Do something with it. Say something with it. You can. There's never been a better time. And if your first thought was, well, who's going to pay attention? That's the wrong question. It doesn't matter who pays attention. You're not doing this for attention. You're doing this because you feel a certain way. You have this truth and you have to get it out because otherwise you will be dissatisfied. That's how you get more vocal. You get informed. You think things through. And you stew on it and build it and stoke it until you have no choice but to have an outlet for it. Whatever it might be. That's how you do it. Great question. Any other questions from anybody in chat? Else we will get out of here. No? Yes? On we go. Shall we march on? Shall we go to the outro? Yeah. Let's hit that outro. Thank you, each and every single person who is here. The new people who were here for the first time, the long-standing regulars who were here, people on Twitch, people on YouTube. Thank you. Thank you for letting me talk about platforms and vocality and speaking up and speaking out and finding your truth. Thanks for letting me talk about titles and acknowledgements and, and writers being kind to themselves. Thank you for this. I really appreciate it. If you like this, if this was your thing, if you want to see more stuff like this, I need to know about it. And the best way I'm going to know about it is if you jump over to patreon.com and support everything I'm doing. Patreon.com slash John helps you write better. Two bucks a month keeps the lights on, keeps me alive and allows for more things like this. I want to thank each and every single person for being here. Thank you for your time, your questions, your care, your love. I care deeply about you. You matter to me. I love you. I hope you're doing okay. All power to all people. Fight against all forms of oppression. Do the best you can, as best you can, as often as you can. The next time I will talk to you. Let's see. Where's my calendar? The next time I'm here for a chat will be on June the 7th. But between now and then, you might find a stream snuck in there. You never know. You know how you'll find out? Head over to patreon.com so John helps you write better. And you'll get all the details. 
So until next time, my friends, take care of yourselves. Fight the power. Do your best. Always do the right thing. And I'll talk to you very, very soon. See ya.